0: Good morning, good morning. It's morning for me at any rate. It's 9.29. I'm sitting at my desk and a uh, a red Kia car has just driven past on the road outside. That's where we're at. That's the situation. It's a grey and grisly morning. Uh, there's a, another car, a, a grey Kia. It's there really are a lot of keyers driving on the road. I'm not going to commentate on every car that drives past. Um, it's been a very long time since we've done one of these voice notes, uh, which is remiss, I suppose. Uh, but it also has meant that in about 16 hours since I sent out a call for uh, all you lovely History Etc. subscribers to post some questions, uh, there have been several dozen. And that's enough to keep us going for a while. So... Uh, I don't know if you remember the format. It's not much of a format. I post a thing that says, ask me some questions. If you're a subscriber, you put them in the comments, and then I do this and answer them. Yeah, a format is is dignifying it, really. Let's get going. Um, I'll just take the questions as they come. As quite a few of these questions have come from people who've been to see me on uh, on UK book tour. Um, tonight is the last night of uk book tour it's friday the 20th of october if you're listening to this in the future well you are listening to this in the future by definition a long time in the future i mean okay ben neville came to uh came to a book tour event last night in canterbury which was a very good book tour event uh in canterbury actually i enjoyed it i hope ben you did too uh, it sounds like you did it says thanks for taking the time to do these uh, kind of things Here's Ben's question. With the Plantagenets, the Hollow Crown, and, of course, Powers and Thrones, you've covered a huge swathe of the Middle Ages in your writing, but is there any one smaller period within that expanse that is your real sweet spot, which, for whatever reason, you enjoy more than the rest? Has that changed as you focused on different projects? Well, I sort of... That's a good question, Ben. Thank you. I started out... Really, I mean, the sweet spot was very specific, and there's a reason the first book that I wrote was about the Peasants' Revolt, because I was super interested in the 1370s and 1380s, uh, particularly in London. And I wanted to do, certainly the first year of my PhD, studying London in the the years before the Peasants' Revolt. But for whatever reason, uh, I couldn't uh, do that in the end so but that that's that's why i wrote about the peasants real first so that was that was kind of where i was most at home and actually i'm back in the late 14th century now because i'm writing this biography of henry v which is going to come out next year and it's really nice to be home um i love richard ii's reign because he's totally totally crazy and that makes for um interesting stories so it's yeah uh, but uh, but i as time has gone on I think Ben, your instinct is right. Yes, my kind of uh, area of focus or sweet spot, to use your phrase, has has shifted somewhat. I, I wrote quite a lot about the Crusades between Templars, Crusaders, and there's a big chapter on it in Powers and Thrones. So that's a kind of that's a spot I like. But I'm I'm interested in. In uh, in having another sweet spot right at the start of the Middle Ages, I'm getting super interested in the sixth century, and particularly uh, Byzantium in the sixth century, North Africa, the Mediterranean. So uh, I guess I'm I'm promiscuous, sweet spot wise. Thanks for your question, Ben. Um, Steve Batty uh, wants to change subject completely. Uh, I know you like Guns N' Roses, he says, but have you heard the Neurotic Outsiders? The band was formed by Matt Sorum, Duff McKagan, with Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols and John Taylor from Duran Duran. They performed briefly in 95, playing the Viper Rooms and released a self-titled album. Yeah, of course I heard the Neurotic Outsiders. That is, that is some, that's some punk business. Uh, D- D- Duff McKagan's solo album's out today, by the way. Very good. Give it a listen. It's called Lighthouse. Um, Beetle Clare. Hello, Beetle Clare. When I read Essex Dogs says Beetle Clare, I felt it would make an excellent TV series. Well, that's that's kind of you. Is there any possibility that might happen? Well, all things are possible in this, the best of all possible worlds. Um, Negotiations are ongoing, is all I can tell you. Lauren Kelly... Lauren Kelly, As I Live and Breathe. Elizabeth of York seemed to play a large role in Henry VIII's young life. Had she lived longer, do you think she would have played an advisory role in the beginning of his reign? Could that possibly have removed the vacuum that allowed Wolsey to enter the scene? Uh, And then sneaking in a second question, if you could have a beer with any Plantagenet, who would it be and what would you ask them? Well, let's answer the second question first, because it it sort of links to the first. Um, I think... There's a very clear answer as to which Plantagenet you want to have a beer with. It's it's super obvious. It's Edward the Fourth. It's Edward IV, uh, the Fourth because the guy is just an old school roisterer. I think you're gonna have a. In fact, what you're gonna do with Edward the Fourth is go out for a beer, and you'll both say, it's no, we we'll just have a quick pint," and then at three o'clock in the morning, when you're in Central London, one of those weird little Spanish bars on uh, what street is it called? The one that kind of like loops round and joins up uh the eastern end of oxford street with the with tottenham court road bradley's spanish bar i want to call it hanway street but i'm not sure that's right dirty bad things happen in the spanish bar bars on that street or used to when i was younger so i feel like uh, you go out for a beer with Edward the fourth and you're ending up um in all sorts of trouble which you didn't expect. And then you've got to go to work in the morning and maybe you don't even go home. You just go to Primark and buy the the cheapest clean clothes you can. Ugh, dirty. Um, What was that about Elizabeth of York? Um, Counterfactuals are hard, aren't they? But uh, I think think by definition, at the beginning of a reign, um, trusted people particularly of the immediate family, tend to have a strong influence on um, on kings. I'm not sure that I would cast, uh, the, the, you know, I don't think there's a, a vacuum and Wolsey just gets sort of sucked in. And I, th- I think Wolsey proves himself um, an extremely competent <clears throat> um, politician and public servant, if you like, civil servant, I suppose you'd call it today. Um... So, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Canifactuals are hard. Tom Hughes. Here's Tom. Tom. Tom Hughes in Colorado. I'm a direct descendant of the Plantagenet, says Tom Hughes in Colorado. Sounds great, until I see things like everyone in Europe's related to Charlemagne kind of takes the wind out of the sails. Uh, and then Tom, uh, if you, uh, I'll, you can go to the, the comments and read Tom's dis, uh, detailed description of his family tree, which is interesting. Um, he's seen some characters from my novel, Essex Dogs, uh, show up in his family tree. But he really wants to know, is our family just a little bit special? How big is the pool? Is it millions rather than hundreds of millions? But then he gets to the at least we have, he gets to the point, at least we have the documented path to follow the tree. We do realise it goes to beyond Rollo, Charlemagne, Alfred, etc. Uh, and his great-uncles William Marshall. Okay, so look, um... Millions upon millions of people are related to the plantagenets That's that's just a natural effect of uh, of human reproduction in a large but semi-permeably closed pool. Um, I, in one of Ian Mortimer's books, I think he puts an essay at the back uh, showing how about eighty five percent. If you're if you're sort of um, if you're you have sort of three generations or four generations of ancestry in the British Isles. The chances are uh, you go back to John of Gaunt. That that's the the fact of it. But don't let it take the wind out of your sails, um, because the hard thing is to, to trace that, and f- tracing your family tree is is tricky and it's a skill and it requires dedication and research and uh, a meticulous note taking and. Tree drawing and so on. So although bazillions of people are within the same large extended family group, far less than bazillions of people can actually prove it. The one thing I'd say is is once you've found your way into a sort of royal family tree, like to take the the slightly cliched example, once you've you've proven you're related to John of Gaunt. Um, it, by definition, you are related to all the others as well in a hereditary, uh, monarchical system. I remember there's a documentary, I think it was when, it was a, a UK documentary where Danny died at Who Do You Think You Are? And he found out he was related to the Plantagenets. And it, it, I, I forget the details exactly, but he was like, it's amazing. Uh, you know, uh, my great, 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 great grandfather is Edward III and I'm related to William the Conqueror. Um, which is a bit like saying, guess what? I'm related to my dad and to my granddad. I mean, it, it's ob- it stands to reason. It's hereditary monarchy. That's how it works. Um, but finding, yeah, so finding that little on ramp into the royal family tree is the tricky bit. Once you're there, you can go hog wild because you are by definition related to everybody. Um, keep that wind in your sails though. And there's look so, and then on the comments, I, I recommend going to the comments on the on the post from yesterday where I asked for uh, for questions because there's a nice little discussion uh, between people who are finding out their cousins because they're all related to Edmund Crouchback. So yeah, I mean go Ancestry, I say. Cynthia Seaton Rogers, two questions about seeking sanctuary, right? Seeking sanctuary. So this is where someone's after you and you leg it into a church, and say you know home. It's like, you can't get me, no, 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 no. How much was it actually respected in practice and what constituted a space in which it could be sought? Well, um, and specifically, could Eleanor of Aquitaine have been safe in the chapel at Mirabeau when Arthur came for it if John had not arrived in time? Well, I th- I think uh, generally churches um, are counter-sanctuary. But there's an element of pragmatism in... in Seeking sanctuary, which is, number one, are you tussling with the sort of people who do actually respect this and who will care very much if, should they breach uh, the terms of sanctuary, um, d- d- will they actually care? Because what are the repercussions? The repercussions are sort of damnation. Uh, and it depends how literally you take that and how much you really buy into the idea your mortal soul can be... Um, can be condemned for misdeeds on the earth. Uh, and the, the second thing is, how long are you actually going to last there? And so Mirabeau is probably a good example. If Eleanor of Aquitaine had sought sanctuary uh, in the in chapel at Mirabeau, all well and good, let's just say Arthur of Brittany and, and co respect the sanctity of the chapel and don't come and wrench her out. Uh, all well and good, except if they block off your food and water supply, you're just not going to last very long in sanctuary. I think. So you need to be, that's why I think people run, for example, if you, if you think towards the end of the Wars of the Roses, when <clears throat> Elizabeth of York, uh, sorry, Elizabeth Woodville um, takes her kids into Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey is a good place to seek sanctuary because the whole thing is sort of uh, hallowed ground, as it were, uh, and probably well supplied. It's like going and Seeking sanctuary in a um, a five star hotel uh, with working kitchens, as opposed to a tiny little chapel on top of a mountain with nothing in it. I mean, you, one of those you're going to last longer before you just have to voluntarily come out than the other. I think that's how to think about it. Roseanne just just lobbing lobbing a boiling hot potato into my hands and watching uh, watching me. Um, scream in pain how many different, sorry, Roseanne says so many different, differing sides brackets, opinions, close brackets about Richard III, what's your call? I'm not getting into all this go read my book The Hollow Crown Uh, I I have a a take in there which is it's, it's it makes logical sense if you're Richard III to get rid of the princes in the tower that's just the sensible thing to do and uh, if you play the history forward, um, it, it, everything makes sense. I'm not going to get into it any further than that. Go read, the, go go get the Hollow Crown, which is in the US. It's called The Wars of the Roses, and there's sort of two or three chapters that in which I sort of lay it all out. Um, but it is an interesting question. So thank you, Roseanne. <clears throat> Dane McAfee says, considering how... Excuse me, I've got a... I've really got... um, I'm just going to clear my throat. That's better. Considering, says Dane McAfee, how little he seems to care for his historical reputation, how do you think Henry II would feel about how influential his legal reforms proved to be for the English-speaking world and Anglo-American democracy? Would it surprise him that reforms meant simply to increase efficiency became the foundation stones of a legal system that really hasn't stopped working since? Um I mean Henry II is is pretty pragmatic as a king. And it's the second time I've I've gone to pragmatism as an explanatory factor, isn't it? How weird. Um Or maybe a third. How did well yeah, I don't... Look, I don't think at this point... We've been talking about this in the the podcast, um, This Is History, A Dynasty To Die For. T- to what extent can anyone imagine the repercussions of things like Magna Carta or, yes, Henry II's um, reforms to the common law? Or if you, you blow it out wide, look at, I mean, I don't know, Justinian in the 6th century. Yeah, That's I me mean, starting to harp on about the 6th century, isn't it? Um, reforming the roman legal code to what extent is this just something that needs to get done right now versus uh something that we think that you think is going to have a long-lasting impact i think mostly it's uh, it's about what is going to solve the here and now rather than trying to um, secure one's place in history uh, would would it surprise henry that reforms became foundation stones i think look if you if you scooped up Henry II Bill and Ted's excellent adventure style for your school project and brought him to the 21st century um, everything is going to be a total trip um, absolutely everything so I think that's just going to be one small part of it Suzanne says are you coming to Amsterdam to promote the to promote Wolves of Winter my my new novel And I was going to be and then they said they didn't want me they said to come next year when I'd have my Henry V biography so sorry about that I thought I was and now I'm not um, Don Mac has a simple question. Don Mac's been out on uh, to see me on book tour? Hello, hello, hello. Uh, simple question, says Don Mac. Best General, Edward III or Henry V? Great question. Really good question. I think Henry V, I think I think it's Henry V. Uh, Angela Wilson has a question about, uh, whatever that program was called, secret relics, le- lost relics of the Knights Templar. Do you think the Templar horde that Hamilton White has is the real thing? And what's the thing he's collected that you'd most like to have yourself? Uh, I think we answered... Th- I, I, I think in the show, um, what I thought about Hamilton White's quote-unquote Templar horde, uh, came through I shall say no more um, uh, Alex says I finished Wolves of Winter in two days when can you feed my addiction and give me more well that's okay so publishing schedule at the moment looks like uh, Wolves of Winter just came out in the UK comes out in on the 30th of January in the US um, then next autumn my biography of Henry, the, uh, Henry V comes out uh, then that Christmas I deliver, well, the final book of this current Essex Dogs trilogy. So that, I would imagine, will come out in the autumn of 2025. Oh my god, that seems so far away. Yes, it does, but I've got to do this Henry this, the V biography, um, uh, and, I, and that's very exciting as well. So uh, I will try and get book three done for, sooner than that, um, but it does take quite a long time and it's quite an intense process. Um, but, uh, look, I hear you. I'm, and I'm super happy that you've enjoyed the uh, the first two books and I will give you more as soon as I can. Shane Bat, your friend of mine, says, um, there's a good question about the Crusades. What happened at the end of the Crusades, asked Shane? That is when there was no more active crusading. Did the threat continue? Was there an uneasy peace? Were truces signed? Um, Shane, the Shane's question is long I recommend go because it's a very uh, intelligent question I recommend going and reading it in full in the comments um, and uh, Shane says I'm curious if there are any lessons any cause for hope that the current situation in the region will eventually have some sort of peaceful resolution or at least peaceful coexistence well cru- cr- the, the development of crusading uh, is sort of woolly at both ends of the crusading period. It doesn't sort of begin out of nowhere in 1095 with Urban II. There's uh, there are there's been a development of what looks like Christian holy war um, in the Spanish peninsula, for example, since the 1060s. So it's, a, it's an evolving origin story. And similarly, it's uh, uh, a dissolving um end story so you know it's it's the by the early 14th century well late 12th century really um the og crusaders have been booted out of uh the holy land and retreated to cyprus and then to rhodes but crusading by that point has really sort of morphed into something quite different so you have there's been the crusading, uh, the Teutonic Knights uh, up in Prussia Lithuania, um, and Lithuania, and that goes on until the end of the 14th century. You've got a sort of weird, well, there's, there's crusading happening in the Iberian Peninsula until January 1492, um, when um, Ferdinand and Isabella take over the Alhambra. In, in a way, Christopher Columbus. Can be seen as uh, as a crusader of sorts. I think I wrote about that right at the end of my book, Crusaders. Um, and then you've got the the sort of Christian on Christian crusading. So down Spain and Portugal um, during the 14th century, you have Christians fighting Christians, and co- both sides calling themselves crusaders because there's two popes, and you can just get your favourite pope um, to give you crusading status. So. The whole crusading movement becomes uh, very disparate and fragmented and sort of whatever you want it to be. There's there's an argument to say that the the Crusades go on all the way up until the end of the 18th century when Napoleon kicks uh, the Hospitallers off Malta. Um, The Hospitallers on Malta are without question a crusading order and they've represented a strand of crusading uh, that has shifted to sort of being a sea patrol in the Mediterranean and, and uh, chasing pirates around um, the southern Mediterranean becomes the, the job of crusaders for a while at the end of the Middle Ages. Um is Napoleon versus the Hospitallers on Malta really, does that really resemble a crusade in any meaningful way beyond just involving a crusading order? I don't really know. Uh, but, you, you know, there is. A, it is possible to say that, no, it's not 1492 that represents the end of crusading. It's actually 1790. As for lessons for the Middle East, I don't think there are any um, uh, practical learnings that can be ported from the crusading crusading era to what's going on in our own times uh, except to say because the political situation is so so wildly different um the the common factor is that here in a in a relatively tiny um space of the world uh are contested religious, cultural, economic issues that don't seem possible to easily resolve um, without constant flare-ups of uh, often extreme, vicious, um, zealous violence. Uh, It's not a uh, this, there's is, this is not like a punchline here. That's optimistic, by the way. <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, <sighs> yeah, right. That's my answer. Yeah. Um, Lottie Seaman says, "Hi Dan, I've heard lots of theories over the years, and have just picked up the book Roman Britain's Missing Legion." Oh, what happened to the Ninth Legion? Gosh, I don't know. Not. I I have only sort of dug into that briefly once when I made the show uh Walking Britain's Roman Roads which we made sort of winter of 2019 to 2020 and we had a little bit on the on the ninth then um but I'm I you know I can't claim to be an expert unfortunately on the in- entirety of world history yet uh so I I don't have <clears throat> any brilliant theory on what happened to the ninth legion um do you get back into the comments and let us know who and what says hannah tingley or tingley i think maybe tingley but i don't know is your favorite metal song and also are any of your tattoos history related uh oh well actually and two more questions from hannah as a student currently studying towards my history degree, are there any eras you don't particularly enjoy? Also, any chance of a book tour coming to Sussex? Okay, in reverse order. No, uh, not really. I've uh, I've just had my entire back tattooed with uh, a version of Durer's woodcut of the apocalypse, so I guess you could call that history related. What's my favourite metal song? Um, gosh, what about "Run to the Hills" by Iron Maiden? the screech of bruce dickinson on that song that's that's pretty heavy but i and i well i do we count tool as metal i what's that song by tool that i like uh it's got a number in the title is it 42 and yeah i like 42 and 6 by tool if you consider tool to be metal uh i don't know if i do or not are they hardcore i don't know Elena Rose Harris Hague says, I just got my copy of Wolves of Winter and it got me thinking. Would you ever consider writing a novel about other books you've published? Oh, I see what you mean. Examples. You wrote a book on the Wars of the Roses. Would you write one from the perspective of Henry VI or Edward IV? I don't think there are any decent male perspective King novels, brackets, except a brilliant one I read on Henry VIII. Or one on King John. Uh, And then uh, Elena gives us some other examples. Um... Well, yeah, I mean, I think actually, yes, uh, there's a great attraction of writing novels set in a period one's written history books about because it uh, it cuts down the amount of, like, uh, basic research you have to do before you can tell the story. And I I find that one of the things I need to be able to do when I'm writing fiction is just to, to write and not to have to stop all the time to look things up period detail and 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 so forth and so i think in that sense it's extremely helpful to have a a working knowledge of the period and its events when you're writing before you start writing fiction so i think if i were to switch periods yes i would i would probably write you know crusading era or wars the roses yes or some or or king john that's a good example something i've done before um, Julia Dietz wants to know what my Christmas sweater situation is. Am I prepared? Well, you know, diehard followers will know that I, I do like a Christmas sweater. The season is approaching, and I've learned my lesson over over the years that the best thing, you, you know, you have to get in early if you want to get the, the sort of hottest drops of Christmas sweaters, Christmas jumpers like you have to be buying late october early november because otherwise all the sort of the, the 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 common sizes of the best lurid um plasticky uh staticky nasty christmas jumpers they sell out um i'll have a look around i i, st- I still like sort of band jumpers so i've had some guns and roses and some metallica and some iron maiden kind of christmas sweaters over the years the th- the other the one thing to say is that because i've now been buying several christmas jumpers every year for quite for some years i have absolutely loads like i'm getting to the point where i have probably got one for every day in december so i, I might have to just get like one this year So, in answer to your question, Julia, yes, I am prepared. I'm more than prepared. If anything, I'm over-prepared. But don't mistake that for a lack of excitement. Deborah. Over dinner last weekend with some friends, came up with a question that generated interesting answers. For you, is writing history a science or an art? Brackets or both? Uh, Well, the historian's answer is both. Um, Is it a science or an art? Um, I think that elements of the two are in there. It's a humanity, and I think that th- some of the dullest history, in my opinion, has been read, has been written, sorry, and read, but not by many people, uh, when there's been an attempt to force it to be either a quantitative science or a social science. The quantitative data science approach to history is more recent because of the computing power that we now have to crunch data. The attempt to make history into a kind of social science probably belonged to British universities influenced by uh, an influx of um, scholars from Europe during this post-war period, there's some very, very dull uh, history as social science written in the 60s and the 70s. Um, it it can, it can be, it can be whatever you want. The, the the one of the interesting things about history is you can take a variety of different approaches to studying the past and so it can be a science it can be an art um, the history that i like that i like is that which is well written um that's a matter of personal preference that doesn't mean that's what history actually is it just means that that's the kind of history that i enjoy uh and so i typically yeah, I typically w- would prefer to see history treated um, at least with a measure of artistry, craft, dedication to um, good writing. But that's not necessarily what it is. That's just what I like. Um, Chris Ball has a very technical question about transcription errors in and alterations in medieval manuscripts. I feel like they must have been common. Yeah, I mean, the, the process of... Of manuscript reproduction was copying by hand um and uh chris asks um, uh, what's what's the pertinent bit of the question uh this might have had consequences altering meaning intent etc yeah this is a, this is just a, a general thing that you get in um in medieval documents yeah yes is the answer um I can't think of... I'm I'm sort of slightly treading water trying to think of a a killer example, but I can't think of a killer example. If I do think of one, I'll pop it on the comments later on. John Street, thanks for the book tour. Saw you in Birmingham. It's great to be able to meet and hear insights from you and add something extra to the book. Well, thank you for coming to the event in Birmingham. I, I had a good time in Birmingham. That was Monday night this week. My question, who from the medieval period do you admire most and why? I've got a little soft spot for Frederick II Hohenstaufen, actually. Um, Is admiration the right word? I don't know, but um, nicknamed Stupor Mundi for a reason, the wonder of the world, Uh, an erudite, fantastically well-educated, intellectually curious, um, uh, polyglot and polymath, uh, as well as the sort of dominant political figure of his age as well as the guy who negotiated a two-state solution for peace in the Middle East um, which ties in slightly Shane to your question um, and was rewarded for it (laughs) not with the medieval equivalent of a Nobel Peace Prize but with being excommunicated four times over the course of his life and having the Hohenstaufen eventually hounded uh, out of existence by uh, an aggressive papacy and their French allies. Um, Great story. Fantastic story, and so uh, Frederick and maybe for me. Um, but I'm writing about Henry V at the moment, and uh, there's there's a lot to be admired uh, in Henry V. Catherine Musgrove Brooks, have you always known what you wanted to be when you grow up? I'm still trying to work that out, Catherine. Um, some questions from several people uh, Andrea Badette among them uh, asking about TV uh, adaptation for the novels that I can't tell you too much about that but uh, things are sort of thinging if you know what I mean Mary uh, Topacchio Rogers sorry if I've, if I've garbled your name Mary uh, which of the characters in Essex Dogs and Wolves of Winter have you found challenging to write since you mentioned a few of the characters already you, you like and you're fond of uh, are we going to see a new documentary series from you in the future? Which of the characters in Essex Dogs and Wolves of Winterfell found it challenging to write? Um I wouldn't say that any of the characters themselves are challenging. I had maybe well, maybe I I um I'm, I'm Denard and I'd I'd s i i would it took me a few goes to get the character of Squillette, uh who in Essex Dogs is known as the woman from Valogne. Uh she's a, a a a big character in wolves of winter and it took me yeah a little while to cast her properly get her quite right um so she was she was and I, it was very important to me to get her right uh romford's a the, the very infuriating character but i love writing him i would say um and he gets himself into such awful scrapes that it can be quite uh, quite upsetting and and nerve-wracking to write Romford. Jessica says, you've said in interviews that the characters in fiction kind of start to take on a life of their own as you're writing them. Are there any character arcs in Essex Dogs and or Wolves of Winter that surprised you as you're writing? Uh, you can answer without spoilers, of course. I will answer without spoilers. I mean, gosh, yes. Uh, there's uh, the first shocking uh, loss the dogs suffer in terms of personnel in book one in Essex Dogs, um, completely blindsided me. I didn't see it coming. And when it happened, I was like, like shocked. And also like, what the hell am I going to do now? I had a big plans for that character. But I think that sense of shock that I felt when the, when that episode unfolded, um, uh, which is in the sort of battle siege of Kong. Um I, th- I was like, look, if I'm feeling that kind of shock, I re- I figure it's going to have the same effect on the reader, and so I and I didn't change it. Um, and the end of Wolves of Winter, really, or the sort of right, yeah, kind of the end. I can't spoil it for you, but there's the the end. <laughs> how can I describe it without telling you stuff You I want you to find out for yourselves stuff goes down involving Romford that I was just like not coping well with at all as it was happening I can't say any more than that but the end of Wolves of Winter is just like wild to me um what was uh, Andrew Kingsbury's a uh, sort of connected question. What was your favorite Wolves of Winter chapter to write? No spoilers of course. My favorite to write. Okay, so it's, it's chapter 6. That's the end of part 1 of the book. Uh and I I knew that I was going to build towards this to end part 1 of the book. I'd m- I'd managed to lay my hands on a translation of the Santa Mare Chronicle. Transcription of the Santa Mare Chronicle and a translation of it. Uh and had that had led me to a very little known episode sort of adjacent to the, the beginning of the siege of Calais when uh, a cathedral in a certain city is desecrated uh, by members of the English army and I knew I was going to build up towards that and I knew that it was going to be sort of wild and shocking and slightly disgusting but but when it the way it played out as i i didn't really know how it was going to play out until i got there and when it played out i was like that i mean that is spicy uh mac blome wants to know about sport i know you're a big rugby fan uh, but do you have a favorite premiership team i suppose premier league team i guess you mean say Prem team what Plantagenet would have been the best footballer and why I think you're talking about football, soccer, for Americans. Um, no, I don't really have a favourite team. I, I wrote a column about sport for a newspaper for ten years, and I, I wrote a lot about football, and that just kicked the 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 love for football out of me. Actually, after after ten years, so no, I don't really have a favourite team. Although I do play in a a, a sort of uh, a last man standing competition in my local pub, where you put ten pounds in, you have to it's pick a winner. And if you pick pick a winner out of the Premiership fixtures that week, you go through to the next round and uh but uh, it has to be a win and you can you can 't pick the same team twice very good competition, so I keep a, a close eye on the Premier League for those purposes. Which Plantagenet would have been the best footballer, and why I see Henry the second as a uh, a snappy little central midfielder you know chopping at people 's ankles um I mean I I you'd probably have Hmm Um Who'd be a good football I definitely not Henry VI. Henry V is not getting in the team, that's for damn sure. Henry V I see as like a really uncompromising um not massively tall. So if you think about Lissandro Martinez uh, who plays for Man United like not a big centre back, but a really, really good, positionally aware, hyper aggressive um centre back. So that's where I play Henry the Fifth. I think you're sticking I, I see Edward the Fourth uh in his first reign as a kind of Erling Haaland um just a big guy, but you know big, young, strong, surprisingly skillful. Just gonna like smash forty goals a season. That's Edward the Fourth. I think who who else we got? Henry Second in midfield. Um, King John just feels like a liability, doesn't he? Uh, as to weirdly, I think Richard the Lionheart's a liability. Like I'm playing Richard the Lionheart. For me, he's a kind of if you can think back to Diego Simeone, um, well, late nineties, turn of the century um in a, a a big aggressive midfielder. If so if um I guess Henry seconds a bit more of an Golo Kante or a Macaulay type centre midfielder. But I think you got you want a big sort of Simeone type as an option and that's uh who did I just say it was? Richard the Lionheart, I think. Um the third player manager um Edward the first of course let's not forget Edward the first I mean you've got he's another option up front I suppose but maybe no 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 hold on next to Martinez at the back uh, next to Henry fifth at the back you have got Edward the first you know a proper big old-fashioned center back uh I think you've gonna have uh, who's going to play right back. I would probably play. <laughs> Maybe I'm playing Richard the Third at right back. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think he's going to do a job for you. Um, yeah, Richard the Third can play right back. Need some wingers or some, you know, or some. I'm, I've, I'm setting up for a four-four-two type team here, and that's a very old-fashioned type of team. So apologies for that. I need a number ten. Who's going to be the number ten? Sort of mercurial. Well, your friend of mine, Eleanor of Aquitaine, she can play number ten. Uh, okay, that's that's enough of that nonsense. I didn't expect to go down that uh, that path quite as as far as I did. Apologies if uh, if you didn't enjoy that. I actually did. Jeroche, um, as part of your research into Henry V, did you read Shakespeare's play? Of course. Uh, you like Branner. I saw. Who did I see do Henry V? I saw Kit Harrington do Henry V uh last year n- not my favorite but by no means as bad as uh timothy chalamet not going to go any further into that if you know my feelings on timothy chalamet as henry v you know my feelings on timothy chalamet as henry v maureen you know on a cultural tip also the lion in winter is the best medi- medieval movie ever made the last duel is the worst thoughts i've only got one thought which is uh, there's a very clear and obvious choice as the best medieval movie ever made, and it's a knight's tale. Move on. Jessica Corsley, have you been to the Haunch of Venison in Salisbury? That's a pub, isn't it? Yeah, I think I have. Do you have a favourite historical pub? Absolutely. It's called the Jerusalem Tavern, and it's on Britton Street uh, and in London, Clark and Wells sort of area, and the Jerusalem Tavern, because it's connected to the Knight's Hospital... Oh, I've stopped being able to say hospitaler. It's connected to the Hospitaller's... Um, place. <laughs> Why have I forgotten how to speak English? Jerusalem Tavern on Britain Street. Wonderful pub. Uh, very small, kind of, slightly spit and sawdust, uh, but they do St Peter's Ales, which are from Suffolk, I think, aren't they? And the old-fashioned, you know, green medicine-type bottles. Lovely, lovely, lovely place. Um... Michelle Marmelo Pedro, who do you think was the best Plantagenet king? Henry V? I mean, I just you just go by the achievements and what everyone else thought about him. Um, gosh, look at all these questions. Um, mm, Katie, have you got some recommendations on books about the Plantagenets that aren't yours? Because I have them all, says Katie. I'll go and get Helen Castor's um, uh, She Wolves. That's, the, that's the, the bomb, that one. Um, hi, Dan. Uh, so, Michelle Mamela Pedro again. Are you doing a European book tour for Wolves of Winter? I'm coming to Spain in February, I think. I don't know if I've got the dates yet. Uh, definitely Madrid and Barcelona. That doesn't count as a European book tour, really, but it is sort of in the right direction because you're asking about Portugal. Uh, Joe Carroll says Joe's planning this year's Christmas party outfits, dress, shoes, corset, lingerie etc. It's a military operation and I haven't even got to hair, makeup and jewellery yet. Goodness, what a party this is shaping up to be. What's the most fun slash interesting outfit you've worn or liked or themed event fancy dress? Um, well, I think my favourite historical uh, fancy dress of all time was when I was gosh, I think I was 19 years old and I was at University, and my college, Pembroke College, Cambridge, had a disco, I suppose you you would call it. It was known as a bop uh, in those days. And it was a 50s theme. And my good friend Rick and I uh, decided to hilariously subvert and deliberately misunderstand the meaning of 50s. And so we decided to go dressed as though it were the 1850s. So we got sort of frock coats and cravats, and we made gigantic sort of what do you call them? Stovepipe hats, those like huge top hats out of cardboard, and we bought some grey offcuts of like a sort of fluffy type material from John Lewis um, or somewhere like that, the haberdashery department, and we cut them into gigantic mutton chops uh, and prit stick them to our faces. Uh, and that, I've still got a photo of it. It was absolutely superb. Everyone else in the night was the 1950s. Uh, we were dressed as the 1850s. I remember d- maybe overindulging somewhat uh, uh, beforehand and falling asleep on the dance floor of the disco. And then my giant cardboard top hat came down over my face, over my head, covered my eyes completely. Uh, so when I woke up, I could hear that a disco was taking place. Um, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't see anything. Everything was pitch black, and I thought that maybe it is true that you can drink so much that you go blind, and that's what happened, but it it wasn't that. It was just the hat. Um, well, uh, there's a... a, a Kim Wheeling's got a question. I'm a huge Guns N' Roses fan. She says, is Duff and his wife as lovely as they seem? Yes, they absolutely are. Some of my favourite people in the entire world. Um... Suzanne, one question. How come people in the UK are more interested in history than here in the Netherlands? Well, I don't know. I can't speak for the Netherlands. Uh, all I can say is I'm glad that people in the UK are interested in history. I'm glad people in the Netherlands are interested in history, even if, in Suzanne's opinion, they could be they could be doing a bit better. I'm glad all of you are interested in history. Thank you for all your questions. Uh, I think I covered them all. I hope I did. Sorry if I missed any. Um, yeah, let's do this again. Maybe we should do this... Once a month, that would be good, wouldn't it? All that all that requires is me for just just for me to remember to do it. Is that possible? Should be. How difficult can it be? All right, over and out.